Hello everybody and welcome back to our Job Bible study series. If you have a Bible handy, please open it up to James chapter 5. And while you do so, I want to remind you that we do have a website, verylutheran.biz, where we are uploading sermon manuscripts, Bible studies, theological resources, and liturgies for any home church needs that you have. And even if you are not in a home church or not wanting to run one, these are still beneficial and edifying for every Christian. If you wish to run a home church or a house congregation, please email me at very underscore Lutheran at tutanota.com. If you have a desire to become a lay leader or a deacon in the Catacomb Synod, the group, the loosely confederated group of house churches that we have, uh, please email me. I would love to assist you in this and we can glorify God in some personalized training in how to be a deacon. But with that said, with our Bibles open, hear the word of our Lord from James chapter 5 beginning in the seventh verse. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, we will be turning to Job chapter 16, but before we do, I want to highlight something from St. James's words on the Job, who I believe to be a prophet. I believe that Job wrote this book. It is likely the first book in all of Holy Scripture to be written with pen and ink, or however Job wrote it. St. James says that Job is an example of steadfastness. In verse 10, he says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. But then the example he gives among them is Job. Job is steadfast to a fault, to a stubbornness, which most often modern Christians read, and they think of it as a character flaw. Throughout this Enduring Job series, we are seeking to counter that precisely because St. James says he is an example for us, somebody for us to look up to, and God himself calls this man blameless in the first chapter. He is not somebody for us to look down on our noses at and say, ah, here's what he did wrong, here's where he was incorrect. To the contrary, we should be learning from him in his responses and be eminently humble if we say that he was wrong on something. But beyond that, in addition, we need to hone in on what James says 
in verse 11, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Our Lord, with the book of Job, wishes to show us that he is compassionate and merciful. That is the entire point of the book of Job, even if we cannot recognize it as much as we would like. So as we read Job chapters 16 and 17 tonight, we are going to be highlighting how the prophet was steadfast and patient, and we are going to look at how this points to our Lord's mercy and compassion on Job and all believers. So let us hear the word of our Lord from Job chapters 16 and 17. Then Job answered and said, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth, and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company, and he has shriveled me up which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mask themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease. And he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands... And my prayer is pure. O oh, earth, cover not my blood. Let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God, as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. Lay down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there who will put up security for me? Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, therefore you will not let them triumph. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. He has made me a byword of the peoples, and I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim from vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. The upright are appalled at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the godless. Yet the righteous holds to his way, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. But you, 
come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. My days are past, my plans are broken off, and the desires of my heart. They make night into day, and the light, they say, is near to the darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother, or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Now note that I did not continue into chapter 18. Job speaks for three chapters here. But chapter 18 has a verse that people will say is infinite. It's famous. I think it's more infamous. Chapters 18 and 19 lead up to the very famous words, My Redeemer lives. And I don't think that Christians understand what Job is saying in there. So given that he speaks for three chapters, and then a fourth chapter where this famous statement, My Redeemer lives, is there, we're going to dedicate some special time to that next week. But for now... We look at these two chapters, 16 and 17, and we have to ask ourselves, where is the steadfastness? Eliphaz, his friend, in the 15th chapter has just condemned him in all of his uh, anguish, in his compassion fatigue. Eliphaz finally lets the dam of his mouth burst and flood forth condemnation. Shut the hell up, Job. Do you even fear God at this moment that you're going to be speaking the way you do? Look at this. It sounds like you're accusing God of all sorts of things. What are you doing to yourself? And Job responds. In chapter 16, verse 2, he says, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Obviously, they are miserable comforters at this point. Perhaps Job doesn't uh, count the seven days of silence and weeping that his friends have gone through with him. They showed great compassion in doing that. But one harsh word, one bad saying, one angry outburst can take all of the compassion that you have shown and throw it in the trash in the eyes of the person you've been trying to help, trying to comfort. Job responds to this reasonably. You were trying to comfort me, but now you're not. Now you're condemning me. Shall windy words have an end? That's a response to Eliphaz saying, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Well, Job says, Well, if it's windy... If I'm speaking empty talk and I'm breathing in the desolation of the east wind, why should that stop? Let's keep going, Eliphaz. After all, you're not doing any help to make me stop. Oh no, you're making things worse. I'm going to keep going. And so he does. What provokes you that you answer? What did I do? What did I say? Do you, do you know what I'm doing? Do you know what I'm going through? In verse 4 he says, I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. Oh, if you were like this, if you lost everything, if you had your entire body covered in blisters and sores, bleeding and cracking the skin, if you were like this, I guess I could do the same to you, huh? I, I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. 
I could strengthen you with my mouth. This is sarcasm in the fifth verse. And the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. Clearly, Eliphaz, you must be such a great helper that, you know what, when this happens to you, I'll be there, buddy. I'll be there for you. Let's see if that does any good. But, an implied uh, contrast here, if I speak, verse 6, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company. Now in context, he is speaking to Eliphaz, responding to his words, and he's pointing out to Eliphaz, you do understand that God is sovereign. You understand that he is ultimately the one that permitted this or caused this to happen. What does that say about him? Well, I cannot say he is evil. Job refuses to blaspheme. He refuses to utter heresy or reviling accusations against God. But for some reason, God wants him desolate. That's all he can notice for now, and he's pointing that out to Eliphaz. You're telling me to repent of some sin that I committed. Have you seen what God has done to me? And so he says, he has shriveled me up and is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. His leanness, his thinness, he looks like a ghoul in this moment. You see it, don't you, Eliphaz? Do you see me? Don't you think I've been through enough at this point? And don't, don't you see what God has done to me? He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Dearly beloved, that is not blasphemy. Maybe Job does not understand what St. James will later point out, that God is compassionate and merciful. In the moment, he doesn't see that at all. In the moment, it appears that God has declared himself to be Job's enemy. When he refers to God as my adversary, he's not saying God is unjust or evil. He's saying God is counting me as an enemy. How else could it be any other way? Look at what has happened. My family is dead. My wife hates me. My friends speak against me. My servants are gone. And my way of living, all these cattle, they're dying. They're dead or stolen. And now I'm covered in blisters, slicing them open with a piece of ceramic, because otherwise the pain just gets too much. And over this passage, Job will reveal even more of the symptoms he is going through. He looks gaunt. He hasn't eaten. He's probably hardly drank anything. And he spoke earlier about how he can't sleep due to the nightmares. We should give some sympathy to Job before we say, Oh, how dare you believe God is your enemy in this moment. If all of this happened to you at once, and there's no explanation, no answer, what else are you going to think but maybe, just maybe, God has decided you have to suffer? Then maybe God has said, I'm opposed to you. In a certain sense, God has every right to be our enemy. He does discipline believers. He does chastise us, as Hebrews chapter 12 says. We all go through that. But Job doesn't see yet 
Now, when God does something like that, it is for our benefit, our sanctification. When God disciplines the believer with calamity and with pain, it could be for correction. It could be for inspection to see what is really in your heart. It could be for perfection. Indeed, God sanctifies us through our suffering and brings us closer to the image of Christ. Our friend Job, our role model for steadfastness, does not have this. He doesn't have Christ revealed to him clearly the way we Christians do. So all he can conclude is, well, maybe God just hates me. And he's not blaspheming. He's speaking based on the observations he's been making. So we continue in verse 10. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They massed themselves together against me. He's referring, of course, to his friends who have decided to start attacking him and assuming that he has done some horrible sin to deserve this. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. We don't know if that's a reference to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. It could also be a reference to the people that stole his cattle, that killed his family. And indeed, that's true. God also gave Job up to the power of the devil to destroy his life. First, sparing only his body, and then, well, not sparing his body, but only sparing the fact that he was alive. I was at ease, verse 12. He broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. And he uses this poetic imagery. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. Uh, gall is uh, offal, vital organs, your intestines. Chances are Job is using this as a not quite exaggerated reference to his open wounds, pouring pus and infected blood all over the ground. He can point to his friends, point at the ground and say, do you see that? Do you see what's happening to me? He breaks me with breach upon breach. The skin opens up. The pain refreshes. He's reminded every time one of these blisters opens and breaches, he's reminded of everything that happened to him. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. He could be, at this point, trying some primitive skin graft. Perhaps he's needed stitches to try to stop the flow of bodily fluid from him. If this is grossing people out, I apologize, but he's speaking crassly and so must we. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. His whole body is covered with sores. It's affecting his eyesight. If one of us were to get leprosy, if one of us was to get a skin condition that covers the entire body, that does not just cause us discomfort in our skin, that will also affect our ability to hear. We will not be able to sleep. Weeping is going to hurt. It's going to press against the skin of our eyelids and cause pain which is doubly cruel for a man who's crying because he just lost everything. 
A sore opens up. It reminds you of everything you lost. You begin to cry. But then crying, the extra pressure from your blood rushing to your face, presses against those sores even on your eyelids and you begin to see blurry, darkened vision. This is a man in unspeakable pain. How can he conclude anything else in his situation but that God hates him? But he did reassure Eliphaz and his friends that he still trusted in God. So he says in verse 19, Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God. That he would argue the case of a man with God. Job still believes there is some sort of witness to God. That he sees this. Maybe there was a mistake in the divine counsel. Maybe God is doing this for a reason that he just hasn't spoken on yet. And so he says, I'm, I'm pouring out these tears, begging God for an answer. I'm begging as a son of man does with his neighbor, like a little kid going to his neighbor for some sort of help, because I want him to testify. I want him to argue his case. Could he speak with me? This is an example of steadfastness. There are too many people in our world today who are like in the parable of the sower, a seed that sprouts up with joy, but the soil is too shallow, the sun beats down on it, it dies. The moment any persecution, any suffering happens, they just leave God. They leave the faith. They go, oh, well, this God must not love me, or he must not exist, or he must be evil or something. I'm going to blaspheme, and I'm going to go on my merry way back to damnation. Job clings to God. He begs for an answer. He, if God was standing right there, he would be holding on to God by the hem of his robe, face right down in the dirt, saying, I am not letting go until you show me mercy. Like Jacob wrestling with God in the book of Genesis, Jacob had his hip torn out of its socket, and he still wouldn't let go. Job does the same. He's begging God for an answer. And in the next chapter, in chapter 17, we, found, we find out why. Verse 1, my spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. Yeah, I see you guys. You understand. <laughs> I've got nothing left at this point. I might as well dedicate myself to clinging to God with all of my strength, with any grip that I have left. I've got nothing else to do. Lay down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there who will put up security for me? He's not saying this to his friends. He's speaking to God. Give me something. There's got to be somebody here who can put up security for me so I can speak to God and hear from him. If we go back to the last verses of chapter 17, uh, verses 15 and 16 lay it out clearly for me. 
Where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Can't be there. Even if I die, that's not hope. Shall we descend together into the dust? I'm not going to let go. No, I, I can't just die here. I know I'm going to. I know I've got nothing right now. But I am not going to let go of God because there has to be hope. If this is the God of the entire universe, Job knows that he created everything, then he can have some sort of hope for me. I am going to stick around and I'm going to wait for it until that hope shows up. I'm going to search for it. I'm going to demand it. I'm going to stick with God until I get it. Our Lord Jesus will say in a parable about a woman seeking justice against her adversary, using the unjust judge as a symbol here, the lady pounds on the door all night, all day, saying, give me justice against my adversary until the judge finally throws up in his hands and says, fine, I will. You're not going to stop. I'm going to give you what you want. Job takes the same attitude. He doesn't know what hope there is, but he's going to seek it. He's going to demand it. Job is going to actively look for hope, and in order to do that, he will stay steadfast with God. Just because times are rough, just because bad things happen, persecution descends upon us, our future as a people, or as believers, or as, even as an individual might look bleak. But the answer to that is not to leave God. The answer to that is not to fall into despair. The answer to that is to stubbornly, steadfastly wrench your hand on the hem of God's robe and say, I'm not letting go until you give me hope. Because I don't know why this is happening. It seems like you're my enemy, but that's not going to stop me from trusting in you. A few extra notes here on the text. We do, uh, we do note that Job does include sarcasm, hopefully as some sort of comedic relief for himself. When he says to God in verse 4, Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, therefore you will not let them triumph, He's looking at God, or praying to him, looking up at the sky, and saying, Dear God, these men are bozos. Please don't let them win in their argument against me. <laughs> in the midst of his desperate, desperate pleas for hope, his desperate clinging for God to be a witness and a spokesman for himself, he says, Could you let these idiots lose this one? And he says here in verse 7, My eye has grown dim from vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. I'm pretty much dead already. We've talked about his symptoms. The upright are appalled at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the godless. More sarcasm. These upright men, dear God, these learned scholars who please, their, their idiots, please help me and save me from their argumentation, but they believe themselves to be upright, and they're appalled at my being a victim. And they're so innocent that they stir themselves up against me as though I am some sort of godless man. Yet the righteous holds to his way. Verse 9, And he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. God, this isn't going to end, because the more 
they argue against me, the more stubbornly I am going to hold on to you. If you want this to go away, if you want to answer me, perfect, then I'll stop. But in the meantime, here I am. Then he turns to his friends again, verse 10, but you, come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. My days are past, my plans are broken off, the desires of my heart, they make night into day, the light they say is near to the darkness. The light is near to the darkness. I wonder if Job speaks prophetically without realizing it. Uh, permit me to humbly ask when he says, his days are past, his plans are broken off, everything's gone, but it makes night into day. The light is near to the darkness. There's got to be something at this time as Job experiences the sanctification that comes with godly responses to suffering, the sanctification that God brings upon us to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness, we see verses like this where Job expresses not only hope, not only desperate steadfastness in the faith, but also what appears to be a growing confidence that in spite of everything he has suffered and went through, he has a future with our Lord, and our Lord will come to his rescue. The light is nearby when there's nothing but darkness. And next week we will see whether he continues, even beside his attitude, beside his cries for help, whether he continues to slowly improve in his speech and improve in advance in the holy tone of his prophetic utterances. We will find out next week, but until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and Amen.